Thank you for joining us here at Brave Church. We hope our teaching inspires you. For more information about gathering times, events, and other resources, visit brave.church. Here's this week's talk. Hey, this is my neighbor, Derek. Come on over here, bro. So um, I just want to say something before we get into it. Derek's going to read our passage, but who's excited for some ice cream sandwiches? Yeah. I love that we don't need a big reason to have fun around here. That that's okay, and I think it's cool that your kids are so excited for spring break that they go to a church that wants to celebrate with them, and that we can be a lively place. So there should be more joy in the church than anywhere on the planet, and that's what we aim to do around here. Uh, But hey, we're going to do something a little different. We're going to mix it up. I want to invite all of you to stand with me, and we're going to stand as we read from God's word. Uh, We don't do this every week. But I feel like today, just as a a step of faith, as an honoring action, we're going to stand because we believe that this book is God's word, that it tells us who we are, that it tells us who God is, and that it is applicable for our lives. So we're going to stand just as a step of faith, an act of honor, and Derek's going to read our passage. Hey, everybody. How are you? Um, I'm going to read Ephesians 2, 11 through 22. And in the New International Version, it's titled, Jew and Gentile Reconciled Through Christ. Therefore, remember that formerly, you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now Christ Jesus, who... who, You who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility." He came and preached peace to you who were far away, and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access to the Father by one Spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people, and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Amen. All right, you can be seated. Thanks, Derek. Um, Amen means agreement, and you're welcome to say it at any point during this gathering this morning, okay? Maybe let's try it. Amen, right? Yeah, okay. Here we go. Well, hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pray before we, before we go into it. God, I just thank you today in advance for everything you're going to say to us for what you want us to see, what you want us to know. Um, I pray that you would open our hearts, that we would be open to a new perspective um, in areas that maybe we're confronted or challenged in the way we've been thinking. And I pray that we would leave inspired and encouraged. Um, In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Okay, so a little background on this passage. When Paul was writing to the church in Ephesians, he was writing to a deeply, deeply divided culture. And so we're going to begin today looking at some fault lines of ancient Rome. We're going to use fault lines as a metaphor, uh, because fault lines 
lead to earthquakes, right? And there were a lot of issues, a lot of fault lines that were erupting and they were hurting a lot of people. They were causing a lot of pain and division. So what are the fault lines of ancient Rome? Number one was religion. Outwardly, Rome was very tolerant of other religions, but internally it was discriminating and making people who were followers of Jesus, Christians, um, less than. It was hurting them. It was, they, they built a temple for the Christians to worship Jesus in. Um, not, not the Christians, sorry. The Jews, they built a temple for the Jews to worship their God in that had dividing walls. And these walls separated Jews, Gentiles. They separated men and women. They separated different people groups. They separated you. If you were sick or healthy, you had to worship in a different place. So this created a lot of anger amongst the people. Number two, economics. There was a huge gap between the upper class and everyone else. A vast majority of all the wealth was controlled by the top 1% to 2%, and then the rest of the people lived in poverty. Number three, social structures. There were a million slaves in the empire. They were abused. They were treated poorly. Women were second-class citizens. So this was a huge source of pain and frustration. Number four, geography. The center of power was in the large cities like Rome and Alexandria. And if you lived on the edges of the empire, you were probably poor, illiterate, and not really cared about by the ruling class. And lastly, number five, politics. Some people supported the power structure of the Roman Empire, but others, they were done. They were upset. They were working subversively to overthrow it. And these people were in a group known as the Zealots. And so they were so done, they were so um, frustrated that they carried around knives so that when the revolution began, they'd be ready. That's how serious it was. That's the kind of climate. So Paul was writing to a culture that was deeply divided. They were struggling to live in peace. And they were trying to figure out, those who were followers of Jesus were trying to figure out, God, what's your plan in this? Now we have salvation. Now we have you. But what do we do? How do we live in this world? And I don't know if you're recognizing some of the similarities to our culture today, right? Especially even here in the Bay Area, um, maybe known as the Rome, arguably the Rome of today. And I say that because there was an ancient, uh, I, I told my wife this and she's like, do other people say that or just you? It's just me. <laughs> but the reason I say that is because there was an ancient saying that all roads lead to Rome. The road system radiated out of Rome. And if you think about it, what we have here in the Bay with the social media companies alone that have been created that are connecting the world, let alone all of the major tech companies that are creating products that are changing the way we live our lives, we very much live in a hub of culture and a hub of the world that is, that is just like what Rome was back then. And so when you think about this, all of our wealth, all of our resource, all of our innovation Yet this is not a perfect place. There are many fault lines here today. So we're going to take a look at the fault lines of America. Okay, Economically, there's a widening gap between rich and poor. Politically, it seems that everyone is demonizing the other side. Racially, it's a deeply unsettling time, especially for minorities. And geographically, coastal cities are liberal and progressive, and rural, rural America is conservative. And so the question that many people are asking is, how do we move forward? How do we move forward? How do we bring peace 
to our broken and hurting and erupting world. And for us as followers of Jesus, there's a deeper question that we must ask. And that is, God, what's your solution? God, what's your plan? How are we going to affect peace in our community? Because whether you care a lot or a little, these fault lines affect us all. And so wherever you're at today, maybe, maybe you care about some of these things and others, you, not so much. Um, but we all need to care. Recently, Dave Chappelle released a two-part Netflix stand-up act. And he'd been you know, silent for about 10 years, taking a break, I guess, raising his kids. But my wife and I watched it. Part two was really crass. We forwarded most of it. But part one was very funny and insightful. And he talks about how at age 42, his generation was trained to care. They, they had shows like Care Bears. Anybody remember the Care Bears? These bears that cared so much that it, that it would shoot out of their stomachs. <laughs> so weird. <laughs> I mean, I remember that show as a kid. It must have been like reruns or something, you know? They were trying to train us to care. Uh, but nowadays, this generation, we struggle with caring. And he talks about how when he was a kid, he remembers in class, the teacher rolled in a TV, and they were going to watch the launch of the Challenger. Okay, and they're all, their eyes glued to the TV. I mean, imagine you're getting to watch a rocket ship launch live, and this was a new thing back then, okay? And as you, some of you know, uh, there was a fire, the spaceship exploded, it killed everyone on it. People are crying, the teacher's crying, everyone's sent home. This was an emotional moment in time. But today, this generation, we're walking around with phones in our pockets, with CNN updates and Twitter, and it's like spaceships are blowing up every day. And it's hard to know. It's hard not to become desensitized to all the problems that are around us. And it's easy to disengage because it feels like we can't do anything about them. As soon as we start solving one problem, it's like a bigger one comes along. But we need to care because you can't be a part of the solution until you care. Maybe for you, um, you can think of moments that, that had a big impact growing up. But maybe you saw our president shot in the streets. Maybe it was the Challenger launch. Maybe it was wars that you witnessed. For me, it was 9-11. I remember going to school. I was in middle school and... I was in middle school, and I remember going, and we weren't sure what had happened yet, so we're, we, everybody went to school, and we're watching, and then we realized that our nation had been attacked by terrorists. We're all sent home. I was teaching our middle schoolers on September 11th this uh, last year, and they, hadn't even, they, they didn't even know about it because they weren't even born. I mean, some of them heard about it, but they were asking me questions, and I was like, man, we're getting old. Like, they weren't even alive yet. That's crazy. I was in middle school when this happened. But whatever it is, those moments or those things, there's things that all of us care about, and there's things that all of us need to care about. Because our hearts should break for the things that break God's heart. So as followers of Jesus, we must care, and we must ask this deeper question, God, what's your solution? And not just for our nation, but for a world that is broken. And that's why I love Ephesians, and I love this chapter, chapter 2, because it gives us God's answer. It gives us God's plan for peace. And I don't know about you, but just knowing that God has an answer is comforting to me. Because I'm hearing a lot of solutions, a lot of you know, potential ways that we can solve some of these things. But at the end of the day, those are temporary if we don't get to the root, if we don't see what God's doing. And that's what we want to be a part of. When I was in Bible college, 
you could get almost every answer right by answering Jesus, <laughs> right? It just worked. And I feel like the professors almost didn't know it. <laughs> it's like, wow, how did that work again, right? With these problems we're facing, they're complex, yet the answer still is simple, and it's Jesus. But where does that leave us? What's our part to play in this? So today, we're going to look at four ways that the gospel calls you to be part of the solution. This is for every follower of Jesus. You are called to these things, four ways that the gospel calls you to be part of the solution. The first one, number one, is that you can preach peace. Verse 17 says, he came and he preached peace to you who are far away and peace to those who were near. The word used for peace here, it's a Greek word used in the first century to describe a messenger, to literally describe a messenger. In Roman times, when there was a war in the empire and the battle had been won, they would literally send a messenger back to give the update and they would preach peace when they got to their city. They'd say, the war's over. The enemy's been defeated. Peace has come. We have won. And that's the gospel, that Jesus has come to preach peace to everyone, those far away and those near, that the enemy has been defeated. So for every one of us who are followers of Jesus, that's what we're called to do. We're called to preach peace. And one of the main ways that we do this is through sharing our story. We've been hearing some incredible stories throughout this series of people whose lives have been reconciled to God, and it's bringing peace to others. 2 Corinthians 5.19 says, God reconciled the world to himself in Christ. And he's committed to us the message of reconciliation. You know, sometimes we kind of get tired or maybe even we forget, depending on when you came to know Jesus, um, it might have been a long time ago that you had that story, that God met you wherever you were. And whether you think it was a big deal or a small deal, it can preach peace to someone else. And so maybe you've shared it a thousand times. My wife and I, her story of finding God is also connected to our story of meeting. You know, when you're newly married, everyone asks you, like, how did you guys meet? And for a little while, we weren't sure how to answer because there's like a really, really short answer. And then there's like a long answer because it's connected to her story of peace, her story of reconciliation. And it's easy for us to forget that even if we've told that story a thousand times, even if you've told your story of peace a thousand times, whoever you're talking to that hasn't heard it, it might be the moment that brings peace to them. And so we can't get tired of sharing our stories. And for some of us, preaching peace is literally preaching peace. It's literally sharing your story. It's literally sharing the message of Jesus. And for others, maybe it's praying. Maybe it's praying for your neighborhood. Last weekend, we had a vision weekend, and we talked about three ways that we're going to accomplish our vision this year, a, a challenge, 90, 90, 90. 90 minutes a week, we're going to pray for our neighbors. 90 minutes a week, we're going to serve, and we're going to give $90 a month above what we normally give towards the vision of what we're doing in this community. And so when you pray for your neighborhood, when you walk your neighborhood, drive it, jog it, walk it, <laughs> when you go through your neighborhood, and you pray for it. You're bringing peace to that neighborhood. Um, I have a new neighbor, and he lives below us. And I came home the other, last Friday, and he was standing outside. He just moved in, and he was locked out of his house. And so I was like, well, hey, you can come up and hang with us. He was going to call a locksmith, try to get in. And then we realized that I could fit through his window. <laughs> He's looking at it like, I can't fit through that. And I'm like, okay. Okay. <laughs> 
<laughs> so I helped him get in. It was great. <clears throat> but that's preaching peace. It's simple. But you preach peace with your life. It's not just with your words. Maybe it's coming alongside someone who's hurting, listening to someone who's different than you are, opening up your home, hosting a home church, serving people. This is preaching peace, and it's what we're called to do with our lives. So who in your life right now needs a message of peace? Easter's coming up, okay? It's just a few weeks away, and we're going to be preaching peace that Sunday. And there's people that need to know, people in your life, people you need to be praying for now. Start praying for those people now. Um, Next Sunday, we're going to have invitations for Easter, just little packets. They're going to be like packs of 10 invitations that you can bring to your neighbors. Now, I say that, and some of you are like, I don't want to go knock on my neighbor's door. Like, I haven't even met my neighbors yet. And maybe for others, you're like, that sounds fun. Let's do it. Um, But here's the thing. You don't know what knocking on that door could bring to another person, to a family, to a future generation. And, if, and maybe for you, like, get creative with it. If, if just going to a neighbor's door and giving them an invitation to Easter isn't your style, bake some cookies. Bring them a gift and invite them to Easter. I know some of you can cook. <laughs> You've invited us to your home. So make some cookies for your neighbors. Be a blessing and bring peace to them. Number two, you can become part of a new humanity. This is the heart of a super rich life. You remember the end of chapter one, we were looking at the power of God that's available for our lives, that this is an evidence that God is at work in the world. And here we see one of the main ways that God's power is at work all around us, and that is through the church community, where we see people who wouldn't otherwise even be friends becoming family. How crazy is that? The people who wouldn't even know each other, I mean, that's the amazing thing about home churches, right, that people who wouldn't even normally know each other are coming to each other's homes and gathering around something so significant that's deeply affected all of us that we're living in peace together. So how does this happen? We see this in our passage. Here's what God's solution is. It says that God brought about peace by abolishing in the flesh the law with its commandments and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new man out of two. So Paul's saying two things here. First, he's saying that everyone's welcome, Jew and Gentile. This is for everyone. See, we can't be a church whose leader died on the cross for everyone that only welcomes some people. That's why we say all the time, when we say everyone's welcome, we mean it. And we mean it to the core of who we are. Because that's why Jesus died for everyone, for all of us to be welcome in his family. And so number two, what it's also saying is that God's plan is to bring people together in the church, and through the church, he's creating one new human being. What does that mean? That's kind of weird, right? Literally, it says one new man. Another way to say it would be a new humanity. That's really strong language. So maybe to help understand, imagine with me that you're joining a club, okay? You've joined a club. Let's say it's a running club, even if you hate to run. And you've got an Apple Watch so you can track your runs, got some shoes, you bought some shorts, short or long, whichever you prefer, right? And so you're in this club, you've invested in it, you're excited, and in a club, you connect with other people through a few different connections, right? A few different common interests, whatever that club's based on. But when you share the same race or the same culture, That's a much deeper connection than a shared interest. 
like running. Okay, a shared race and culture is a much more profound thing because it affects almost every area of your life. It leads to thousands of connections with other people who are of the same culture as you, connections with every area, and it can feel like a very strong connection because it is. But do you know what Paul is saying here? He's, he's saying that, let's say you're Chinese or you're French or you're Hispanic, and in spite of all the connections you have to other people who are also Chinese, French, or Hispanic, when you become a Christian, that becomes the most profound thing of all. Paul's saying it creates an even deeper connection, so much so that when you become a Christian, though you're still Chinese, though you still feel a connection to other Chinese people, you now feel a greater connection to people who also believe and have experienced the conviction of their sin and the grace offered through Jesus, you feel a closer connection to those people than even people of your same ethnicity that don't share your faith. The church actually becomes a new humanity, and it's a radical concept. And this is one of the ways that God is redeeming the world. So I love our home church. I love home churches. That's why we, we talk a lot about home churches. Uh, Marcy and I's home church is very diverse. It's diverse in age, season of life, ethnicity. It's diver- some are married, some are single. Some have um, kids on the way. Some don't yet. Um, we have everything in our home church. We're really blessed by that. But our home church, our connection, it's not based on hobbies. It's not based on common interests. It's not based on our culture, and it's not based on our age. We all have something to offer. We come together, and we have different strengths, different perspectives, different things that we're bringing to the circle, and we have what the world is searching for. We're an example of what the world is searching for. We stand out dramatically. We contrast everything around us when we gather like this. So maybe this is challenging for some of you here. Maybe you've been following Jesus for a while, and you're still white first, Christian second. Maybe you're still brown first, Christian second. One human being. God's creating one new humanity through Jesus Christ. One. We are all connected deeply now if you're a follower of Jesus. And so if you struggle with this, if you struggle with seeing other people that you're not related to or aren't like you as family, here's an idea. Here's a challenge for you that I think will be really good for your heart. Do something for someone you're not related to that you would normally only do for family. If you've got an empty room in your house, maybe there's a young adult who needs a place to stay. If if you have um, friends that have little kids, there's a lot of those around here. There's a lot of babies. Babysit for them so they can go on a date. Kids you're not related to. Maybe buy them dinner. Do something for someone that you'd normally just do for family, and you know what that is. What are things that you normally would only do for family? And do it for someone you're not related to, that you're a brother or sister in Christ with. So let's see what God does to our hearts through that. He's he's showing us a better way to be human. Number three, you can accept others without comparison or judgment. In verse 11 through 15, Paul uses circumcision and uncircumcision as a case study to illustrate the hostility Jews and Gentiles had towards one another. So there was a dividing wall between these two groups. And what was the cause of this dividing wall? 
Ironically, it was something that God had to deal with. It was the law and its commandments and regulations. See, the law that God gave the people of Israel was meant to make them a holy nation that would be a light to the rest of the world, that would be a light to others. But what it ended up doing as they stood apart is that it created hatred and hostility because they despised everyone who didn't have the law. And then the people who didn't have the law despised them for despising them. It's a cycle. Like There's nothing more provoking than being despised by someone. So as a result, there was this hostility, and the good gift that God gave the Jews became the reason for hate between races. And for some of us, this problem feels far away. For others, it feels close. But I love what the gospel does, and it gets to the heart. So don't be thinking about who needs to hear this or anyone else in the room, because this is a case example of a universal fault line that affects all of us. And that universal is this, that when God gives us good gifts, talents, strengths, and resources, there's something in the human heart that takes those good gifts and it elevates them up to an absolute value and then looks at everyone who doesn't have what you have and it causes you to look down on them and despise them. The good gift becomes a basis for hostility. This is particularly true, not just between individuals, but groups of people, cultures, and classes. It's a way we get our identity. The way we define ourselves, the way we get our self-worth is by taking what's good about us, what's distinct, lifting it up, and then taking a look at everyone else and judging them and saying, oh, we're not like that. You know, that's not how our family is. That's them over there. Maybe you've had a friend who um, consistently is speaking negatively about other people, Maybe they're constantly pointing out the faults in others. And there's a point, maybe, maybe they're even right about the things they're saying, but there's a point where, as the conversation goes on, it says more about the person who's talking than the person being talked about. In other words, we get our identity by looking down on others and excluding them, by puffing ourselves up. People do this. Different ethnicities do this. Companies do this. Some churches even do this. There's a verse in the Bible that expresses this so well. It's a Pharisee praying, a Pharisee praying in Luke 18, 11. And he lifts his eyes to heaven and he begins to pray. And his first sentence is, oh, Lord, I thank thee that I'm not like other people. This is nothing new. This has been a problem since the beginning for thousands of years. There's, there's a story about a man who was shipwrecked on an island. And he's on this island and he's there for a year. And they, they come to the island, they find him, and he had built two churches, two little huts. And he was a very religious man. And so here he is, and they're like, well, why'd you build two? And he says, everybody needs a church to go to and one to stay away from. Because <laughs> that's how you know who you are. There's something in the human heart. It takes what's good about you. It lifts it up so that you can feel superior to other people. We get our identity, our self-worth. We feel better about ourselves this way. It doesn't last, but we feel better about ourselves. We moralize things, and it's exactly what happened between the Jews and the Gentiles because of the law. But your worth, it's not in what you look like, and it's not in what you can do. So your worth isn't in your popularity. It's not in your success. Your worth isn't even in being a great mom or dad. Your worth isn't in what you give or how much you serve. I mean, think about it. If your worth 
uh, is wrapped up in being a parent, for example. Say you're the best parent imaginable. I mean, you give your children everything they need to be successful. You have set them up for success. You have loved them. You You were like the Jesus mom or the Jesus dad. You were perfect. And they grow up, and they still make stupid decisions. What's that going to do to your sense of self-worth? If it's wrapped up in that, God never intended any of these things about us to be as important as who we are in him. My wife likes to do things at her own pace. And I'm very punctual. And (laughs) you guys get this one, don't you? So the day before our wedding... She told me, she was like, I'm going to be so upset if you guys are late for the photos. And the photos were before the ceremony. And we had a pretty strict timeline, just you know the way the day went. So she's like, I'm going to be so upset. So guess what? We were early. Guess what else? My Mexican wife and her sister, who's also here, and her mom and her cousins and her bridesmaids, they were over an hour late. Not only did they miss the photos, they almost relate to the ceremony. Now, a racist would say, oh, that's Mexicans, right? Oh, that's Mexicans. They're just... And the other side would say, oh, those white people, they're so uptight that that's why they're always on time. I'm just going to let you laugh a little bit because, you know, you're still going. But... But do you know what an anthropologist would say? They'd start giving you a lecture on how some cultures are, are time-oriented and others are event-oriented. They, they define the event in terms of the time or, the, or other cultures determine the time in terms of the event. So what does that mean? That means that on Sundays, when I wake up for church and church starts at 9, I'm ready to go by 8.45. When my wife wakes up for church, she's going to get ready. Then she's going to go to church. Then she's going to have lunch. Then we're going to take a nap because we don't have kids yet. And whatever else we're going to do, these are a series of events. And getting ready is one of those events. In other words, each culture can lift up its strength and use it to look down on the other. And that's what we do. Even here in the Bay Area, one of the most progressive places in the world, where it's not okay to walk around judging other people that are different than you, Yet we prop ourselves up with the strength of being progressive, as if we're more enlightened, as if we've surpassed some of this kind of thinking. And we do it in so many ways. One of the ways we do this is through our politics. We say, oh, man, we demonize the other side. Oh, man, you guys voted for who? You're ruining the world. You did what? Like, who are you? We do this. It's a heart issue, and it's going to manifest itself in one way or another. Not our strengths or the good gifts he's given us. These aren't the things that we build our identity in. There's a a reason why the earth is red with human blood. Why we haven't been able to solve these issues. Why there's been so much hate. Why no generation has magically been able to solve it all. Because the only solution is Jesus. I have one more point, but before I share it, we're going to finish this morning. I'm going to invite the band to come and join me. And I want to give us some time just to take a pause for a minute to reflect. There's this song we're going to sing, and it has a chorus. It says, help me to love with open arms like you do. 
a love that erases all the lines and sees the truth. Oh, that when they look in my eyes, they would see you. Even in just a smile, they would feel the Father's love. I just want to encourage you this morning to ask God. As we, as we have this moment, you can sit, you can stand, you can close your eyes. But this is a moment for us to check our hearts and to say, God, is there anything in me that's taking what you've given me, that's taking the good gifts that you've given me, the strengths and the abilities to compare and to judge others? Because if we can't start here, we'll never have an impact out there. And we want to be part of the solution. So let's do that this morning. Last point today, number four, is that your life becomes an example for others. Verse 16 says, he reconciles both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hate. How does that happen? God slew hatred. He slew hostility on the cross. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, God made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We should be destroyed. We've ruined this world. The world runs red with blood all around us, like all these problems, all this hatred, all this murder, all all of these issues are, are because of us. And yet God decides to destroy the hatred and to destroy the hostility. On the cross, he took the punishment that we deserved. And because of that, we can be forgiven. We can become part of a new humanity. We can be a family. We can be a blessing to others because Jesus gave his life for us. Our lives can actually be an example for others. Hebrews 2.11 says that he's not ashamed to call us brothers. And I think that's just so, so profound that Jesus was perfect, that the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit was a superior race. It was perfect. And he wasn't ashamed to call us brothers. And because of that, when the cross comes to the center of your life, there won't be anyone you're ashamed to associate with. Not someone whose struggles are different than yours, that maybe you think are uglier than yours. Not someone who um, has a different personality than yours. Not someone who looks differently than you look. It doesn't matter who you are. When you have the cross, you can accept everyone. And that's the kind of church that Jesus came to build. And that's the kind of church that we want to be a part of. So if you'll bow your heads and join me, we're going to close in prayer. God, I just pray for everyone here. As we see your vision for a family, a family that is beautiful, a family where everyone's welcome, a family where you can come just as you are, problems and all, and that you can find grace, that you can be accepted, that you can find examples of a godly husband. You can find examples of a godly wife. You can find examples of what it means to be a part of the solution. So God, I thank you for um, everything that you are saying to us, everything that you're doing. And I pray for each person that as we conclude this morning, as we leave today, that we would know some things that we need to do some acts of love, maybe for people who don't know you, who need some peace in their lives, that we would see ourselves as messengers of your peace. In Jesus' name, amen.